part of exegesis is just a, a kind of technical term that names uh, an approach of reading scripture that distinguishes without dividing Christ's divinity and his humanity and recognizing that scripture says something that uh, have in view Christ's divinity uh, or you could say they're true on the basis of his divinity uh, they have reference or respect to the divinity and and same thing on kind of on the other side of the ledger uh, scripture says some things that are true on the basis of Christ's humanity or that they have specific reference to Christ's humanity does doctrine really matter the Apostle Paul once wrote to a young pastor named Titus, instructing him to hold firm to the trustworthy word he was taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Welcome to Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. Here's your host, Dr. Matthew Barrett, executive editor of Credo Magazine, and associate professor of Christian theology at Midwestern Seminary. Welcome to the Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. I am Matthew Barrett, your host. I have been teaching theology for a number of years now, and I often find that there tends to be some tension, um, typically among lay people, sometimes pastors, but especially as I interact with students, a little bit of tension in their own minds as to how to reconcile how they are interpreting say, the New Testament, for example, with what they know about, say, the Trinity or the person and work of Jesus Christ. Uh, oftentimes, behind this tension are some bigger questions, not just about that particular text, whatever text it is, but how to actually uh, hold in hand, uh, in one hand, uh, systematic theology and the task uh, of the theologian, and at the same time, taking seriously the exegetical task, what it means to interpret Scripture. Uh, on a broader scale, we could even say that uh, many are trying to think through how do we actually coordinate uh, even biblical theology with systematic theology? And is there a certain grammar? Are there certain rules even, even theological rules, that should guide our exegesis of Scripture so that Yes, we end up with the right theological conclusions, but at the same time, we're also being faithful to the text. Well, these are difficult questions, very challenging ones, that I think evangelicals in particular continue to wrestle with, and at times have been pushed to wrestle with, given some of the Trinitarian or Christological errors that we bump up against. Well, for these reasons, uh, I am thrilled to, to have on the Credo podcast not just one, but two individuals, uh, Bobby Jamieson and Tyler Whitman. Uh, many of you know them from so many of the different things they do. Uh, Bobby, for example, is associate pastor at Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. Maybe you've read his book, The Paradox of Sonship, Christology and the Epistle to the Hebrews. Or maybe you're familiar with Tyler's work. He's assistant professor of theology at New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary. And he's written an academic book called God and Creation and the Theology of Thomas Aquinas and Karl Barth. But recently, both of them have also teamed up to write a book called Biblical Reasoning, Christological and Trinitarian Rules for Exegesis with Baker Academic. And I must say, it is not just uh, an enjoyable read, but I think a very timely one. Bobby, Tyler, 
it's great to have both of you on. I don't think we've ever done this before, having both of you on at the same time. Thanks for having us. We're even here in the same room together. <laughs> well, to be here, man. I, I hope that makes it easier. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I wish I could be there with you because um, I'd love to to do this in person. But having you both there in the same room, I'll, I'll settle for that uh, because I think uh, the two of you speaking uh, to what we're going to talk about today, uh, the two of you speaking to it at the same time, I think will be a huge advantage for our listeners. I, you know, there's so many things we could focus on in terms of how how do we actually understand our exegesis of Scripture in a way that's, that, that truly is theological. But I think it would be helpful for us to focus on what is called partitive exegesis. Uh, perhaps some of our listeners have heard of that before, but they don't know what it means, or they're not quite sure how to use how to use it, uh, maybe even with specific texts. And uh, maybe it's the case that for some of our listeners, uh, they're even feeling a bit of conflict between how they've typically interpreted certain New Testament texts and then what they're hearing about this partitive exegetical rule. Now, both of you have, have kind of defined it more or less as Scripture speaks of Christ in a twofold manner. Some things are said of him as divine, and others, other things are said of him as human. Biblical reasoning then discerns that Scripture speaks of the one Christ in two registers in order to contemplate the whole Christ. Therefore, read Scripture. And here's where you guys give a, uh, just a very helpful instruction. Uh, therefore, read Scripture in such a way that you discern the different registers in which Scripture speaks of Christ, yet without dividing him. Can, can you all elaborate on, on this and maybe what you mean? And, and, and uh, of course, this isn't new with you, um, but this goes way back to even the church fathers. What did they mean by partitive exegesis? I want, I want to let Bobby speak to that. Can I just back up for a second and just kind of like, just, just so the reader, your, your listeners know, readers, uh, just so your listeners know that, you know, the, the, the chapter which we talk about this really is kind of situated fairly late in the book after a lot has been laid down hmm. um, that's, that's really, um, you know, kind of flowing into it and, 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 and feeding it. So uh, we don't just kind of start off with the part of the exegesis. There's a lot of things in place. And if we have, if we refer to that in some of what follows, we, we have to just, just so the uh, listeners know, this is all kind of patiently laid out step by step in the book, but yeah, part of the exegesis, that's something Bobby and I were both interested in. Bobby's actually written a whole other book on this and, and how it helps open up Hebrews. But let me let, uh, let me let Bobby take it away since he was the primary author in this chapter. Sure. Well, um, in a sense, a part of exegesis starts from the reality of who Christ is. He is God the Son who has become a man for our salvation. Uh, and given that reality, he unites in himself, uh, in one person. He unites both divine and human uh, characteristics. And so that means that there's going to be inevitably things we say about him uh, that have the appearance of contradiction. Or they look contradictory on the face of it. Wait a minute. If Jesus is God, how about this? Uh, how come he, you know, gets tired or how come he, uh, you know, confesses ignorance of the time of his second coming and, and the gospels or, you know, what about this? What about that? Or if he's a human being, well, how is it that he can? Uh, claim to forgive sins or that kind of thing. And so there, there's apparent contradictions that 
um, both, but just like uh, if you're reading the Gospels, you might think, wait a minute, what's going on here? Uh, and then, of course, in the history of uh, debates over the identity of Christ and, and the triunity of God, uh, that there's certain passages that come into play, certain issues that get raised. And what, what part, part of exegesis is just a, a kind of technical term that names uh, an approach of reading Scripture that distinguishes without dividing Christ's divinity and his humanity, and recognizing that Scripture says some things that uh, have in view Christ's divinity, uh, or you could say they're true on the basis of his divinity, uh, they have reference or respect to his divinity, and, and same thing on, kind of on the other side of the ledger. Uh, scripture says some things that are true on the basis of Christ's humanity, or that they have specific reference to Christ's humanity. And in a sense, you know, to put it real colloquially, you can think in terms of two buckets, uh, not not ontologically, but in terms of how we're how we're mentally how we're mentally kind of sorting out different statements of Scripture. Uh, is this speaking with reference to His divinity or with reference to His humanity? We need to kind of sort those realities and keep them distinct in our minds, so that we don't somehow. Uh, you know, start start to kind of um, limit or misconstrue his divinity because things that are said of him as human or vice versa. Um, that's that's a little bit abstract, but I, I suppose in a sense you could kind of you know play um, spin spin the wheel of any kind of you know statement in the Gospels, and you could you could ask, I think, legitimately, is this speaking about uh, Christ with reference to which of those realities, or sometimes both at once? Mm. Now, maybe we should. We should also mention, uh, given what you just said, that assumed in, in, in this whole partitive exegetical task is another distinction between theology and economy. Now, this is a distinction that often comes up when we're talking about the doctrine of God, um, because there are really important Trinitarian uh, discussions, especially in light of um, the modern period where there's been all kinds of debate over how to understand theology and economy. Can, can one of you just define for our listeners who are wondering, well, what, what, is the, what is that difference between theology and economy? And does Scripture at times speak of one or the other or sometimes both? How would, how would you answer that? Yeah, that, that's a really good question. One of the things you'll notice about partitive exegesis as it's practiced in the early church by someone like, for instance, Cyril of Alexandria, his commentary on the Gospel of John is a great example here, um, is that when he's doing this kind of part of this maneuver, he'll say, well, you know, th this statement here makes sense. Um, you know, this is said about the Son or the Word is um, according to the economy of his flesh, right? Um, and that's where he's kind of gesturing towards Christ's humanity. Um, but really more than Christ's humanity. He's in, he, he means to say the whole purpose for which Christ came. He's kind of summarizing his whole saving mish, mish, mission, right, that begins in the Father's sending of him, you know, into the world and all, all of this. And then other statements will say, well, this has respect to uh, theology, right, or, um, you know, the, the blessed divine nature or something. But theology is a it, 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 well, it's a weird word. Some people are like, I thought theology is what we're talking about. You know, like <laughs> <laughs> theology. If you read a lot of these older textbooks in theology, you know, they, they they kind of start off by saying like, well, let's look at all the different ways theology can be said. Like, I hear all the different meanings of that word. Um, well, one of the earliest meanings of it for the fathers was just, you know, it was it was di literally discourse about God. And so when they're talking about it in this partitive exegetical context. 
they mean that theology is really things that we're saying about the divine nature. Mm. Um, whereas they say, uh, they, they would say that economy refers to everything that God does out with his own life, outside of his own life. But it, it, anything God does that respects something other than himself, right? So um, creation, redemption, eschatological consummation, all of these kinds of things. That's all economy because it concerns the economy of his works. Economy, of course, another that's another one of those words we can have to teach people, right? When I'm teaching students, I I kind of uh, tell them this has nothing to do with invisible hands, okay, <laughs> and, uh, and 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 market forces, right? Um, an economy is just a, it, it's an it's an orderly administration of something, um, and so it's a it's a really great word that's used in the Bible to refer to. God's administration of um, the cosmos and of all of history as he guides it towards a specific end. An economy is, is a, a kind of purposive um, ordering of things to accomplish a certain end, right? Mm. Um, you know, we even speak of, you know, maybe some listeners heard of people taking home economics back in school, back in the day, you know, like, and even that carries that kind of same um, connotation, right? There's an order here that is meant for a certain end. Mm -hmm. And so when you're talking about part of the exegesis, you have to have some kind of background there in terms of your doctrine of God, doctrine of Trinity, who it is we're talking about. You also just have to have some kind of a sense of the economy. And, um, you know, it it would be a discussion for another time, but if the book is missing one chapter, it's, it's a, um, a robust chapter about, that aspect right there um, about the economy. We had to kind of leave that on the cutting room floor way back when, but, uh, but yeah, great, great question. Theology, economy, basic distinction there between God and his works, basically. I mean, a text like first Timothy three sixteen comes to mind when Paul says uh, we're confessing this mystery of godliness. And then he says, the son, he's talking about the son saying he was manifested in the flesh that phrase there. And then he goes on to say he's vindicated by the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, et cetera. And then eventually taken up into glory. Um, I, I can't help a little tangent here because uh, one thing that (laughs) I don't know if it was both of you or, or one of you, but you brought into uh, the picture here, PG Woodhouse, (laughs) who's uh, (laughs) You know, I mean, this is uh, maybe some of our listeners don't know who P.G. Wodehouse. They're not familiar with some of his stories. But um, uh, here we have uh, the uh, how do you even describe him? Uh, The uh, eclectic. uh, You call him the butler savior Jeeves. (laughs) And you use this uh, example illustration. uh, Any uh, that, that kind of brings out this theology economy distinction and how it kind of sheds light on uh, Paul using phrases like manifest in the flesh. And if you want to comment on uh, Jeeves for a second here. Sure. I'll, I'll take the bait. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, think I've, I think I've managed to squeeze Woodhouse into two different academic books. So I'm, I'm trying to keep up a kind of batting average here. Yeah. So, so Bertie is the kind of hapless, uh, you know, he always gets into scrapes and can't get himself out and Jeeves always come to the rescue. And um, Bertie talks about how, uh, Jeeves does not uh, appear to enter rooms through doorways or be uh, physically constrained <laughs> in such manner. He just manifests himself. Yeah. We all know people um, like that. <laughs> as if he can just, you know, relocate himself, pass through walls, all that sort of thing. And of course, it's just a humorous way of, of Bertie gesturing toward Jeeves's vast powers. Uh-huh. Um, but actually, this does map onto the theology economy distinction in the sense that 
in Paul's tight, concise summary of the gospel in First Timothy 3.16, you know, using that phrase, the mystery of godliness, in a way that's really kind of a summary of the whole thing, uh, just, like the, just like he himself uses the term economy uh, elsewhere, like in, in Ephesians 1.10, um, to say he was manifested in the flesh uh, is, is to say, it's to imply that Christ has a prior existence uh, that is not limited or restricted to this existence in the flesh. And precisely by coming in the flesh, he reveals, he makes known, he, he displays uh, a reality that existed apart from and prior to that flesh. So in a sense, that, that, in that one verb, it, it kind of has, uh, it, it explicitly, as it were, makes known the economy, that is, by becoming incarnate, Christ reveals God to us and accomplishes our salvation. But it implies a theology, that is to say, his divinity uh, that exceeds and is revealed by his flesh. Um, so in a sense, in that one word manifested, you kind of have to have both theology and economy to make sense of that. It, it's manifested in this incarnate economy. But what is manifested? Well, uh, that that it, it, I think it's Christ's uh, antecedent divinity. Mm. Tyler, were you going to add something to that? Uh, no, I mean, it's just, yeah, I, I was just going to say, you know, if, if readers want to know more about this, I mean, First Timothy 1, 4, I mean, Paul, he, you know, kind of talks about this, this economy kind of theology distinction in, in you know, verses 4 through through 11, basically. And we, we talk about this in page, uh, pages 24 through 25 of the book. He talks about understanding the, well, not devoting themselves to myths and in genealogies, you know, not being curious with the wrong things, but rather, you know, understanding Scripture in such a way that, that promotes the economy of God that is in faith. That's how we translate that, that phrase in verse 1-4. And that really gets into understanding, yeah, God's economy, right? The the whole of the of the world in light of what he goes on to talk about in verse eleven, which is in light of the uh, glory of the blessed God, right? So already in Paul's letter there that you're you're you're, you're quoting from in the very beginning, he's gesturing towards this theology economy distinction as important to understanding the gospel itself. Mm. I, I think both of those passages uh, really bring us face-to-face with some deep issues in Christology, right? I mean, here, if, if we actually are going to say what, what you just said about theology and economy, well, naturally, that leads us to start thinking through, well, how, in what sense is Christ uh, consubstantial? And, and, and here, we, there's a double aspect, right? There's this consubstantiality between Christ, between the Son and the Father, uh, so that we can say, as as the Creed does, that He is true God of true God, light of light, etc. Um, sometimes the language of uh, possessing the same being can be used, and at the same time, we're recognizing, even in some of these same passages, that, that sometimes they speak of both at the same time. You think of Philippians two, for example. Uh, we can simultaneously say, well, this same son assumed our human nature. And here, we it's not just Philippians 2, but goodness, I mean, the Gospels themselves, uh, John 1, for example, uh, to the point where we can say uh, this is actually uh, the son uh, who is Emmanuel, God with us. Now, Turretin, uh, Francis Turretin, the, the Reformed uh, theologian, when he described both of these, well, when he turned to 
speaking of the incarnation, he said the consubstantiality of Christ with us consists in identity of nature and essential properties. Now, both of you have made the point that when we then turn our attention to the incarnation, we have to be really careful. The Son is God, and therefore we can say that he's the transcendent creator of all things. And yet you can also make the point that, well, his divinity, as you both say, is not set in a zero-sum game with his humanity. What, what do you mean by that exactly? We just mean that his, uh, his divinity doesn't displace his humanity. This is um, a pretty important foundation or a principle we, we lay down in, in chapter four. Why is it important to say this? This might be just a, a better way of getting into it, just uh, illustrating. If you had a conception of God as one more part of the cosmos, just the biggest, most powerful part, okay, then God would differ from creatures in quantity, right? In just like size, in strength, right? In in resources or or, or whatever, right? But he would he'd just be like he'd be like a a bowling ball on a billiards table, okay? But that's not how the Christians have ever really conceived of him. They've always thought of him as having a qualitative distinction from all the other things. He's not part of the cosmic furniture, in other words. He is he's other than that. Mm. Okay. Um, he, he, he's so different as not to be different from us in, in just in terms of quantity or, or, or magnitude, but in, in quality, in, in mode, he's just completely different. Well, that's important to say because, you know, when something is, is just like me, right? Um, if I'm going to turn into an, uh, an, an animal, let's say that I'm a, you know, a lycanthrope, right? And I'm going to turn into a, a werewolf, right? I'm going to turn into a wolf. <laughs> well, I have to actually like, I have to actually transform into that. Right. And you yeah. see this in, in, in kind of, uh, in, in pagan uh, myths, right. Mm. Uh, Zeus, you know, transforms into uh, a bird or something like that. Right. So one of the things that this helps us to affirm is actually the full humanity of Christ, mm. you know, to say that God is, is not that his divinity doesn't kind of have to compete for space uh, with his humanity means that Christ, that the, the, the eternal son can become a man without ceasing to be God, and that he really does become a man. He doesn't just look like a man, right? And he doesn't exchange his divinity for humanity. He doesn't have to kind of, you know, offload one nature to take on another. He can have two natures because they're not two finite natures. They're not two two natures occupying their own space within the same kind of cosmic room. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, hopefully that makes sense. The payoff there is that God incarnate is actually God. And he's actually incarnate, right? He's God and man, um, both in the fullest sense. Now, I noticed you're using some really important terms here, like nature, to to articulate this. And maybe we can can dwell on this for a minute, because uh, in Christology, and even as we're interpreting these texts, it's it's quite crucial that we don't assume that. Well, when we talk about the Son's incarnation. We don't mean that the son's humanity had its own, say, personality, as if the son assumes a man out there, but rather we are, we are saying that, uh, no, there's, the son is assuming uh, a human nature. Uh, and, and this gets into some you know, more technical discussions about 
and hypostatic, impersonal and, and hypostatic. Maybe you can tease out the difference there and, and why that, you know, that may seem like a, a technicality to some, but it's quite a crucial one if we're, if, if we're actually going to preserve divinity and humanity. This question can, you can really go down the rabbit hole here. Um, <laughs> you know, what we try to do in the book is really keep concepts like nature doing uh, as little work as possible. Right? We, we're, we're kind of minimalist on our, on our commitments. Not entirely. We, 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 we show our hand metaphysically here and there. Um, but what we're, what we're really trying to encourage people is to just say, look, you need some summary concept that describes what the divinity is to the extent that we can know that kind of thing. Um, and, and, and what a human nature is, which is actually much more accessible to us. Uh, and, and to distinguish these two things. But when we use the, na- the word nature, we're not trying to say that Christ's divine nature and his human nature, well, they are just two instances of this broader category of nature. So, right? Um, nature is a word that we're using analogically there. We're using, we're trying to pick out some similarity with an, an even greater dissimilarity. We're just saying, whatever it is that makes God, God, um, well, Christ has that in full. And so we're labeling that uh, a nature. And whatever it is that makes Christ man, he has that in full. And we're labeling that a nature. Now, if you want to go down the rabbit hole, right, then, then you can get into, um, and, and, and like a lot of scholastic theologians do in the Middle Ages in particular, but also uh, to some extent in the um, you know, 16th, 17th centuries, um, is that you'll, you'll want to get precise about, well, what a nature is and what it isn't. And you know, one of the helpful things to to deny here when you're talking about a nature is to say, well, a nature is not a person. You know, the person-nature distinction is is actually a gift that Christian theology gave to uh, philosophical inquiry more broadly. You know, th- those categories have been around, but they weren't functioning the way that they functioned until I think Christian, you know, philosophers, right, theologians came along and had to really draw a kind of fine line as to what a person was, and what a nature was. Um, if people want more about that, they can they can read Robert Spayman, um his book on persons. Uh, he he does a clearer job of articulating that than I can. But what we mean to say here is that when Christ assumes he when he takes on right a nature, uh, our, our human nature, we 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 mean to reject adoptionism of some sort, right? Which would be that the incarnation is an instance of God kind of seeing someone who he really liked and he's like, you know, this Jesus fellow, he's all right. Um, and I'll kind of adopt him as my son. And well, that's not what we mean. We mean the son is an eternal son of an eternal father. Um, and that son without ceasing to be what he is as God also became a man. Right. And, um, full, full stop. So, uh, he assumed a nature, not a person. And so in that sense, we could, we could characterize that nature as being and hypostatic, meaning that nature does not have a, uh, it's not attached to a person until it is attached to the Son of God. Um, now, clarity would demand us to, to say quite a bit more, right? We could say all sorts of things about human nature. We could say, well, you know, a nature uh, is, a, is a thing. It subsists in and of itself. It's not an accident of belonging to some other substance. But at the same time, um, it doesn't exist, uh, you know, in itself, in the sense that it does. It, 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 in the sense that it doesn't require anything more in order to exist. It does require a human, or in our case, we're talking about humans. A human nature requires a human person to subsist in, right? It needs, um, it needs to be uh, tethered to a person. And so, in that sense, 
the humanity of the son is non-existent until the son assumes it. And he does that in the Virgin Mary's womb. Um, so <clears throat> Christ's human nature uh, subsists per se or through itself only in its union with the word of God. Uh, so that's, that's getting a little bit deeper. I think maybe I'll stop. I don't want to get too more, much more technical uh, for the listeners. But, um, but yeah, that, 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 that's kind of what we're gesturing at with person and nature distinction. Even if that uh, distinction, um, you know, as you said, takes you down the rabbit hole, uh, it, it is really crucial because it does help us. I mean, all of these distinctions are really crucial because as we then begin to wrestle with certain texts, uh, we some some of these distinctions actually keep us from certain errors, uh, keep us from certain mistakes, some of which can be quite uh, catastrophic for our Christology. So maybe it would be helpful for our listeners just to take a few texts and put partitive exegesis to work and see how it actually manifests itself, both in giving us a fruitful and uh, faithful. Uh, interpretation of scripture, but also in a way that is faithful to uh, the person of Christ as well. Now, there there are a lot of texts, and I would just encourage our listeners. I mean, the one of the strengths of uh, Bobby and Tyler is they're not just giving you these distinctions and laying out certain rules, but they're they're actually showing you how to implement them in a variety of ways. So uh, let's take a few texts. Um, Let's start with the Gospel of John because, uh, I mean, we've all heard this type of objection or this type of question. Uh, maybe it's from a churchgoer. Maybe it's from a pastor trying, you know, preparing a sermon. Oftentimes it comes from students uh, in which they will say, what do I make of John 14? Uh, on the one hand, uh, I, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God, uh, eternally begotten from the Father. Um, Maybe they even go so far as say, I, I know he's consubstantial. Uh, he's of the same being. But then what am I supposed to do with John 14, 28, when Jesus says, I'm going away, I will come to you. If you loved me, you, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Uh, Tyler, Bobby, can you put this in context for us and, and help us understand uh, how partitive exegesis might apply at this point? Yeah, absolutely. And in a sense, we can simply start by examining the passage in its context. So what does it mean, I am going away? Well, uh, John 13, 1, uh, that Jesus knew his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, meaning uh, it, his, his bodily presence will no longer be in this world with the disciples, uh, accessible to their sight and other senses, but he is going to leave. He will no longer be there. And so there's a departure here, which is the kind of one of the key words that gets repeated throughout um, John 14, 15, 16, 17. Jesus' departure is going away. Um, okay, so he's going to leave. They're no longer going to see him or have personal access to him. What's that going to mean for Jesus himself? Well, Jesus prays and thereby tells us uh, in John 17, verse 1, Father, the hour has come glorify your son, that the son may glorify you. And then even more specifically uh, in John 17, 5, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So Jesus's departure in one sense will be lost for the disciples. They won't have him there with him personally. 
uh, in an, and in a different sense, it will be gain for Jesus. He will receive the glory in God's presence, uh, that glory which he had with the Father before the world existed, but somehow, in some sense, he's going to receive it anew. And so, in a sense, um, John 17, 5 kind of gives us a paradox. Wait a minute, how can he, how can he receive glory if he already had glory? Um, and I bring in John 17 because it helps us answer this question that, that would naturally come up in our minds when we read John 14, 28. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father. So I think, I think that prayer just a few chapters later helped answer the question, wait a minute, what, what, how is it better for Jesus that he leaves them and goes to the Father? Well, he tells us he's going to receive this glory in the Father's presence which is the glory he had with, with the Father before the world began. So, so I think, in other words, if you look at this element of departure, which is there in the language of the verse, and then if you, if you find a contextual answer to the question, why should they rejoice? Why is this better? You actually need to appeal to Jesus' humanity in order to explain both those elements. Uh, insofar as he is God, he's the creator, he's the one through whom all things were made, he, he doesn't depart or go anywhere because those, those categories pertain to creaturely finite existence where we're located in space and we have to move around. Um, so it's only as a human being that he can even be said to leave them and go to the Father. It's also only as a human being uh, that it is better for him now to be with the Father because he re-receives this glory. And now we can specify. I had to kind of say, well, in some sense, uh, he gets this glory. Well, that that refers to his being glorified as a human being. Uh, and, and however we specify that or whatever details we understand it to, to imply, uh, it's a glory he receives as a human. And I think uh, on the basis of the work he has accomplished uh, for our salvation as a human being. So right there, just in order to explain kind of the, the spatial dynamics of the verse, where is he going? What's he up to? And to explain this rationale, why is it better? We've had to appeal to his humanity. And so I think, I think um, since Jesus says, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I, there is a kind of chain of explanation here. They should rejoice because he's going away. What does that mean? Because he's going to be glorified. Well, uh, what, is, what does it mean that he's going to be glorified? Well, he receives this glory from the Father because insofar as he's a human being, uh, the Father is greater than him. It's just like how we understand uh, Jesus to refer, you know, when he says to Mary, tell, tell, um, go to my brothers and say to them in John 20, verse 17, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Insofar as Jesus is the eternal son, God is his father in a unique sense. Um, insofar as he's redeemed us, God becomes our father in an adoptive sense. But then how is it that Jesus can say he is my God and your God? Well, he's speaking as a human being. So I would say partitive exegesis is the, the tool for the job here, because there are elements of the way Jesus is simply speaking about himself and his actions uh, that clearly have reference to his humanity. And so I think we shouldn't, um, I think we would be wrongly sort of pushing this verse beyond its intended reference. Uh, the verse itself is indicating uh, that it speaks about, you know, Christ with respect to his humanity. And this is not talking about uh, an eternal hierarchy. This is not talking about an intra-divine structure of authority or something like that, because uh, if we if we think that way, we've just forgotten that Jesus is talking about realities that only have to do with 
uh, his human existence. You know, and so Augustine waxes poetic here and talks about um, the reason the disciples should rejoice is because now dust incorruptible is going to sit on heaven's throne. <laughs> Which I think is a is a wonderful way of putting it, sort of poetically and playfully. Slap as a kid. Yeah, dust corruptible is now going to rain on heaven's throne, and then Augustine drops the mic and walks away. <laughs> <laughs> now, let me just play devil's advocate for a minute here, because maybe uh, one of our listeners is thinking, "Okay, okay, I see the context of John fourteen, but." What about 1 Corinthians 15? I mean, 1 Corinthians 15, 24 through 28 is this long passage, but one in which it seems to be quite clear when it says, okay, when the end comes, he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. And then goes on to talk about how he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet, which I think is an echo from the Psalms. But then it goes, Paul goes on to say, the last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted uh, who put all things in subjection under him. And then it says, Paul says, when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him that God may be all in all. Now, uh, maybe some of our listeners are familiar with some of the debates and controversies that have happened in the last five, six, seven years. Uh, sometimes, for example, you will have uh, representatives of, say, uh, EFS who will, this is one of their favorite passages. They'll appeal to 1 Corinthians 15 to say, well, if, if Paul says that the, in the end the Son is subjected uh, to the Father, that must mean that the son is eternally uh, subordinate, functionally subordinate to the father, and that's that's uh, defines him as son, even apart from the economy. Um, and uh, sometimes they'll even go on to say, "Well, this is uh, in the future, so this is even beyond the economy." But uh, my uh, guess is that Tyler, uh, Bobby, you actually have a pretty good answer to this, and it also has to do with partitive exegesis and some of the rules that you uh, lay down. I know it's a big passage, but can you give us some of the context here that will help us understand in what sense is Paul speaking of Christ? Sure. That's a great question. And I think we should start by looking at the immediate context. So, so listeners, if you have a Bible, you know, go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians 15. And um, you can see in verse 21, as by a man came death, by a man has come also uh, the resurrection of the dead. So it's talking about Christ in his ongoing embodiment. You know, later in the chapter, Paul talks about, uh, you know, verse 48, as was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust, and as is the man of heaven. Uh, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. So Christ's humanity, precisely in his resurrected, glorified state, is a key and prominent aspect of the passage, Paul kind of returns to it again and again and again, and is asserting in a sense that Christ's resurrection and glorification uh, are the, they're the guarantee, they're the kind of generative energy uh, of our final destiny and being conformed to that incorruptibility. So 
Paul's concerned, in other words, to define uh, kind of the final state of our humanity with reference to the current state of Christ's humanity. So to talk about Christ as a man is very prominent uh, in the passage itself. I think another um, another key point here, and you mentioned, Matthew, you know, the allusion to some of the Psalms here. Uh, there is an allusion to Psalm 8-6 there in verse 27. God has put all things in subjection under his feet. And I think what Paul's doing there is saying uh, this work that Christ has completed and which is guaranteed by his resurrection and which will, I should say, in one sense, fully be brought to fruition uh, at the general resurrection, when the kingdom fully comes, that will be the fulfillment of humankind's created vocation, uh, that God put all things in subjection under humanity's feet. Uh, but of course, that does not fully take place until Christ completes his saving work. So it's precisely in fulfilling the human vocation as constituted at creation, as being created by God to rule his creation under him, to have authority over the creation and yet be in subjection to God's authority. And oh, by the way, it was in refusing to be subject to that authority in the first place that we made a hash of it. We, we made a huge mess of things. And of course, God uh, from all eternity had ordained a plan uh, to rescue us and, and restore us and more than restore us. Uh, similarly, even in... um. Uh, a couple of verses earlier, there's an allusion to the authority of the Son of Man in Daniel chapter 7, talking about every rule and authority and power. So what's going on there? Why is that figure called the Son of Man? I think it's at least in part because he is a, a representative and the guarantor uh, of the fate of humanity as such. So what's going on here in, in Paul's use of the Old Testament? He's, he's showing how Christ, through his incarnation, and specifically now his resurrection and glorification, how he's bringing the human vocation to fruition. And one aspect of that vocation is obedience. So we have to keep in mind that what Paul's talking about is, in a sense, the very last scene in the whole drama of Christ's saving work. He's died for us. He's been raised for us. He's reigning at God's right hand. And Paul's looking ahead to the very last thing Christ has to do to cinch it all up, which is uh, come back raise the dead, consummate the kingdom. So he's talking about the very last bit of what Christ is doing to save us. And so once Christ has done that, there's a sense in which uh, mission accomplished, uh, he, he, has, he has no further saving work to do. And so I do think Paul uses the language of submission and subjection here to talk about uh, Christ, as it were, obediently uh, handing over the keys to the Father, having completed all that the Father gave him to do, uh, he is, in a sense, in this final act of submission, fulfilling and completing the human vocation. And so I think, you know, the kind of interpretation you reconstructed a moment ago, I think it's right, of course, to point to the future. It's right to see a genuine act of submission. Um, but I think that submission is entirely bound up with Christ's role as mediator. Uh, it, it's, it's bound up with his ongoing incarnation. It's bound up with his role as our representative. It's bound up with how Christ is actually righting Adam's wrong. Uh, even at this late stage of his incarnate economy. So in a sense, we're not talking beyond the economy. We're talking about the conclusion of the economy. We're talking about the economy coming to its, its telos. And so I think when you take all those things into account, I don't think there's any sense in which it would be appropriate to talk about this being uh, an eternal submission or eternal subordination. For one thing, <laughs> it's future. Uh, it's not present. Um, but for another, and here we should zoom out kind of canonically, um, there are also passages we have to take into account that say he will reign forever. 
you know, Isaiah 9, 6, uh, which is which is fulfilled in Luke, Luke 1, 32 and 33, the, you know, uh, uh, announcing to Mary that her son will reign on David's throne forever. Uh, this is not an absolute end to Christ's reign. So I think we also have to bear in mind canonically that this is this is not a sort of absolute handing over of all authority. But I think a kind of fitting and representative act of, of submission or subjection. So just to zoom out and kind of think about part of exegesis as a whole, I think part of exegesis is, is helping us to be alert to simply asking the question, is this speaking about Christ as God or as man? And his humanity is just such a prominent feature of the whole passage. Not only that, but like we talked about, this distinction or the theology economy distinction is about the difference between speaking about God in himself uh, and speaking about God's ordered plan of redemption. And this passage is very much about the completion of that ordered plan of redemption. So I would say uh, it simply does not speak about the intrinsic eternal relation of the Son to the Father. It doesn't really have anything to say uh, to that relation because it is conditioned by, it presupposes his ongoing incarnation. Mm. Yeah, I love the language you use there, uh, even the language of Adam. Right, because uh, this shouldn't surprise us with the Apostle Paul. He loves to go there. Uh, there's even a sense in which we could talk about, uh, as you did, that yes, there's an obedience, but it's an Adamic obedience that uh, is representative of us. I love what how Augustine treats this uh, when he says, inasmuch as he is God, he will jointly with the Father have us as subjects. Inasmuch as he is priest, he will jointly with us be subject to him. Uh, he seems to be doing something similar to you when he, Augustine is bringing into the context here, well, what about Christ as priest? And so uh, it's it's just a, a tremendous reminder that uh, the context in which Paul is saying this is so crucial um, as we then reflect on, well, how is 1 Corinthians 15 conditioned uh, by the humanity, humanity of Christ? Now, uh, maybe we have time for just one more, and uh, this is one that uh, is also very common. Uh, it's all throughout the New Testament, but I'll just point to Acts 2, uh, right at the beginning of the book of Acts, when it says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, sometimes uh, Christians will wonder at this point, well, does this mean then that Jesus is becoming Lord? Uh, and in what sense should we interpret that language? Now, you both have pointed out two errors that we can make that we need to avoid. Maybe you want to reflect for a minute here on in how, how should we understand lordship language when it's attributed to uh, to Christ? Let's let's talk about Acts two. I think, um, so I'm just flipping my Bible to get there. So in Acts 2, Peter has just cited Psalm 110, verse 1, where the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Um, so there is, when Peter says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, he's talking about the fulfillment of that passage talking about the fulfillment of that kind of prophetic vision that David had. And so I do think in the context of Luke and Acts together, Jesus is identified as uh, the Lord, Yahweh, who's, you know, the, the name is picked up and rendered in the Greek as kurios, which comes over into our English as Lord. It's a, it's a surrogate. It's a substitute or placeholder 
for the personal proper name of Yahweh. So in the broader context of Luke and Acts as a whole, for instance, you know, John the Baptist is said to prepare the way up for the Lord, and that's the Lord himself coming to his people. It's the of Isaiah chapter 40 and all sorts of other Old Testament promises. So Jesus is the one true God of Israel who comes to his people to rescue them in person. That's the kind of backdrop here. But what's interesting is, you know, even in Psalm 110 verse 1, there's the Lord said to my Lord. Uh, so, so somehow there is a Lord who is at least personally distinct from the Lord. And Jesus, of course, makes use of this in his own disputes uh, with the scribes late in the Gospels, Mark, Mark 12, Matthew 22. Um, and so I think we first need to recognize, well, somehow there's a personal distinction here where the Lord makes someone personally distinct from him, Lord. And so I think that's part of what's going on here with Peter. Uh, and he's saying, this has happened. This has taken place. Um, now, there's also an element of, well, what is the, the throne on which this Lord reigns? Like, just how high an office is this? Mm-hmm. And I do think, ultimately, uh, what we have here is Jesus being exalted to the right hand of God, sitting down on the very throne of heaven, and thereby exercising a divine dignity, one that only God himself uh, can exercise. And so it's only because he is God incarnate that he can enter into this office of Lord, that is to say, Messiah reigning in power, Messiah reigning at God's right hand, and so on. Um, But what that allows us to say is Jesus really did become Lord, in a sense, distinct from that in which he is already always the Lord. He is the one true God of Israel who's become incarnate to save his people. And by completing this whole saving work, you know, his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, his ascension to God's right hand, now he is Lord in the sense of reigning in heaven, installed at God's right hand in power, uh, in fulfillment of these messianic psalms, especially Psalm 110 verse 1, which means we can do full justice to that verb made. We don't have to say, oh, well, well, he was just already Lord, and this just kind of reveals it. Uh, we don't have to say this is just a kind of manifestation of a prior reality. You know, thinking within the economy, which has that kind of U-shape of incarnation, life, death, uh, resurrection, exaltation, thinking within the economy, this is genuinely something new. And, and by the way, this also helps us understand what can seem strange to us as modern evangelicals. You know, why do the apostles always go around talking about a uh, just the resurrection and the ascension. Don't they care about the atonement? Don't they care about the cross? There's a sense in which the resurrection and ascension of Christ uh, guarantee and demonstrate that he is the fulfillment of all of these messianic promises about a king, about someone reigning on a throne, uh, about someone who's going to come in power. Where's the power? It's in heaven. Where's the throne? It's at God's right hand. Uh, And so this is something genuinely new. He didn't occupy this throne while he was suffering on earth. Uh, He didn't occupy this throne while he was still in the course of completing his earthly work. So we can say this is genuinely new, while in in a sense that that in no way jeopardizes his divinity. It in no way jeopardizes his identity as the one true God of Israel. And I think there's a similar dynamic going on, for instance, with his being given the name that is above every name in Philippians 2. Of course, he's always had this name. But the being given signifies that now he's entering into the open exercise of those prerogatives and privileges or something similar with Hebrews use of sonship that um, Hebrews uses the term son to talk about Jesus eternal relation to the father. Uh, But also he became son in the sense of uh, you are my son today I have begotten you or I will be to him a father and he will be to me a son insofar as that name is the office of Messiah. 
he was already marked out as Messiah, identified as Messiah in one sense. But if you ask, hey, hey, if you're a king, where's your throne? He, he began to occupy that throne at a set point in time. As we finish out this discussion of partitive exegesis, uh, what would you say, what would both of you say in terms of maybe a word of encouragement to our listeners, maybe they, uh, maybe for some of them, they feel discouraged because they look at how they've interpreted or even preached the text in the past and they think, oh, oh my. <laughs> and uh, they didn't pay attention to some of these rules. Uh, maybe for others, they're, they're uh, overwhelmed because they think, well, how I'm just a, you know, a, a meager uh, interpreter of the Bible. Is this something I can really do? Is this something I can really accomplish? Um, how would you uh, encourage some of our listeners to have maybe their ears uh, tuned to uh, something like partitive exegesis as they're approaching the text afresh? That's a, that's a great question. Um, I, I think that one of the things that people should keep in mind, and we talk about this early on in the book, in some of the early chapters, is just how reading scripture, you know, we're not masters of, of the Bible, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I often tell students who are pursuing master's degrees, master's of divinity, you know, that they're, you could have a, just a silly title, right? Uh, <laughs> um, you know, yes, yes, you should be able to teach, right, on divinity. That's, I think, what the, the core of the, of, of the title means. But you're not, you're not, there's no mastery here, right, genuine mastery of uh, the Bible or of God himself. And so we're always learning. And we're always growing. And, um, you know, the book that, I mean, I think Bobby and I both learned a lot writing this book, but, you know, that I don't even think we're done learning about the things that we've written about, um, <laughs> you know? So, um, you know, it takes time. Um, anything worth doing takes time, but theology especially takes time. Mm. And being a sensitive reader of the Bible takes time. There's no shortcut to it. And so you have to have the mentality of a, of a farmer, right? You have to have the kind of patience and humility to continually go to God's word, expecting to be taught and a willingness to be taught and a, and a humility knowing that that's going to take time. And so uh, I think that that's the first thing I would say is just that if people are feeling like, oh, I haven't done this before, whatever, well, that's because you're not dead yet, right? And you're still <laughs> learning, right? <laughs> so. Um, until you're uh, enjoying the beatific vision, right? Uh, you're going to be uh, learning. And, and even then, I think you're still going to be learning. So this is part of what it means to be a creature is to learn and to do so over the course of time. The other thing is, I always tell students as well, you don't have to become a proficient Trinitarian theologian who can talk to me about processions and missions and personal properties and characteristics and notions. You, know, you don't have to be able to do all these things, right? <clears throat> what you do have to do is you have to be able to proclaim the faith, if, if you're going to be especially preaching or teaching in any capacity or, or discipling, you have to be able to understand some basic contours of the faith. You have to be able to understand the Trinity, right? So that you're not leading people astray. And I think the book goes some way towards equipping people to do that. It's not the only book you need to equip you to do that. You're going to, you know, you need to read, especially people that we're interacting with, the footnotes. You know, there are other books on the Trinity that I think we do a good job. These are, these are things people can learn. Uh, I know this because I teach students this stuff and um, who, who have all sorts of different, um, you know, who come equipped with very different intellectual capacities, right? And I think students can grasp this stuff. I think anyone who wants to learn this can learn this stuff and, you know, then they can start applying it 
and it may not go as smoothly as they want to at first, but I think eventually people get the hang of it. Mm -hmm. So, Bob, Bob, is there anything you want to add on to that? Sure. I think in some ways I would want to say, it's a very good question. I think I'd want to say, um, don't sell yourself short. You probably know this even in a sense better than you think. I mean, if you're a Christian, you worship uh, Jesus as the God-man. You know he is both God and man. And in some ways, intuitively, you'll make sense of Scripture in that light, in those terms. And and in a sense, what we're trying to do is just help um, kind of sharpen up a grammar that, uh, you know, someone already may be a, a pretty fluent speaker of Scripture's language. The more immersed in Scripture they are, the, the better they, they will know God and, and these mysteries. Um, we're just trying to help sort of sharpen up the grammar so that there can uh, be a clearer and crisper understanding and then an ability to handle maybe some of these more difficult passages or that kind of thing. So I wouldn't want to lay this on somebody as a burden of, of kind of a technical vocabulary they need to master. In one sense, we're aiming at the simplicity on the far side of complexity, trying to help people get some of those light bulb moments where, oh, yeah. Jesus can be glorified. It doesn't mean he didn't have glory before, but it means once he finishes his saving mission in heaven, that's kind of a whole new stage of his own human existence. Oh, I, I get it. Of course, that doesn't compete with the idea that his divine, he's divine, you know, because he's, he's looking ahead to, to finishing his saving work. You know, so I would just say I would hold out that hope of, uh, you know, if you're a preacher or teacher of God's word, what you want to do is put in that hard work of being able to sort of understand something in a very rigorous fashion so you can present it as simply as possible and have the joy of seeing those light bulbs turn on uh, that will hopefully deepen people's devotion to the Lord as well. Now you can fill up on theology each day by visiting credomag.com. There you will find the latest issues of Credo Magazine with articles on key doctrines of the faith and regular video interviews with Dr. Matthew Barrett, where he answers some of the toughest theological questions of our day. Be sure to subscribe to Credo Podcasts to join the conversation, a conversation where doctrine matters.